Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and as part of our Newsmaker Briefing interview series, our guest today is David Andelman. David Andelman is a veteran foreign correspondent for CNN News, author and commentator who contributes frequently to CNN on global affairs. A member of the Board of Contributors of USA Today, David Andelman served for more than seven years as editor and publisher of World Policy Journal. David Andelman was executive editor at Forbes.com, a domestic and foreign correspondent for the New York Times in New York, Southeast Asia, and was based in Bangkok and the East European Bureau Chief based in Belgrade. David Andelman then moved to CBS, where he served for seven years as Paris correspondent. Andelman followed as a Washington correspondent for CNBC, the news editor of Bloomberg News, and business editor of the New York Daily News. In the course of his career, David Andelman has traveled through and reported from more than 85 countries. Interestingly, David Andelman has joined the Center on National Security as a visiting scholar and director of its Red Lines Project. We're going to talk about that today. The Red Line Project's conception arose from President Barack Obama's failure to enforce a red line in Syria when the dictator Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons on his own people, killing more than 1,400. Obama's cabinet disagreed strongly with his decision to walk away from the red line without military action to remove al-Assad from power. David Andelman has that mindset, as does the Red Lines Project, as we try to better understand this very important global security issue we need to do so right now. This will be a fascinating interview, and we'll talk about the Red Lines Project, cybersecurity, the world in a post-pandemic state. We'll talk about President Biden, Putin, and heart health. You will love this interview. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, CNN's David Andelman. David Andelman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's good to speak to you. Uh, first off, how's everything going? How are you feeling? Uh, isolation go okay for your family? Everybody healthy? I guess, how's your asthma doing, too? We'll, we'll start there. You, you doing well? I'm, I'm doing fine, actually, Paul. I, I came racing back on March 13th of last year uh, from Paris, uh, where I spend about a third of my time in the, in the good days. Uh, I came racing back uh, a day ahead of uh, when Donald Trump said he was going to turn off all um, travel from Europe. So I wanted to make sure I made it back in time. We came straight out here from the airport uh, to Canada, Pennsylvania, in northeast Pennsylvania, near the Delaware Water Gap. We have all had we have had a long, uh, long had a, a, a wonderful little cabin in the woods. Uh, there is a, a trout stream runs through the backyard. Uh, we back up onto a a state forest, so it's really an idyllic setting. And we've basically been here ever since. So we've forsaken most, for the most part, our our apartment in New York City and our apartment in Paris, where we haven't been able to get back to ever since then. My health has been fine. You know, we have actually better than fine. We, um, uh, I avoided the usual uh, winter colds that sometimes have turned into bronchitis and once or twice into pneumonia because we simply haven't been around anybody contagious particularly, at least not until we got our our jabs earlier this year. So um, that's all been fine. The asthma, I have my usual, you know, spring asthma with the pollen that's uh, everywhere, especially around here in Canadensis, but um, we're past that. So, you know, I'm fine. I'm okay. Well, good. I'll bet you that trout farm is keeping you healthy too. Oh yeah. the uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we love to fish and my wife loves to garden and whatever. And then you know, I have a full studio set up here, and, and um, I write, and I finished my last, my most recent book, A Red Line in the Sand. I finished that here last year, and it was published in January. So I've been productive. 
Yes. Congratulations on all that. What do you think of the second wave of the virus? You think we're going to get past this one too? I think it's going to be not as easy, perhaps, as some people have suggested. Uh, the um, the Brits are already beginning to see some, you know, become concerned. Um, as many as fifty thousand new cases and so on in Britain. Uh, The French are also concerned. We are certainly and should be concerned because we do not have anywhere near the numbers of people in in large stretches of the country that have been vaccinated who desperately need to be vaccinated to keep all of us safe. So um, I I think we're not completely through it yet. And I think I hope we're not too sanguine about it. Um, I have friends who refuse to get the the vaccine. and I'm I'm just astonished And, and intelligent people sometimes. So. Well, I've been asking you a little bit about your health because you you have an interesting story to tell us. I have long been a fan of yours. I know a little bit about this, but why don't you tell our listeners about about how you listen to your heart? Because, I mean, we should all listen to our heart, but you have a twist there. So so what do you mean? And tell us what happened. Well, you know, I, I, I was um, I, I've traveled the world. I've been to 86 countries now um, uh, as a correspondent, uh, first for print for The New York Times and CBS News. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've been surrounded by the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia. I've um, been beaten up by the Polish secret police. I've been expelled at gunpoint from communist Czechoslovakia. I've been, I've been through everything. My heart has been through everything. And I've had asthma my whole life since I was a child. So I've had an, a wonderful pulmonologist, Stuart Garay at NYU Langone Medical Center, a little plug for him. And um, about uh, 20 years or so ago, or actually probably more like 15 now, uh, he um, he listened to my my he listens to my lungs, of course. I, every, every time I see him, usually two or three times a year, and he's listening to my heart. And he said, you know, he he heard something that wasn't quite right. He said you should go to see a cardiologist. So he sent me to a wonderful gentleman, Sidney Mel, um, who actually was one of the early victims of COVID. He is no longer with us, uh, which destroyed me. But um, at any rate, uh, Dr. Mel listened to me even more carefully, immediately sent me for an echocardiogram, which is a special uh, test of the heart, which is like a sonogram, basically, of the heart and the heart muscles, and discovered that um, I was born slightly deformed. Uh, I had a aortic stenosis. I had been born with a aortic valve, which is called a, a bicuspid valve, rather than a tricuspid valve. Most of us have three leaves in the aortic valve, I had two. About maybe a quarter to a third of Americans have uh, about born with bicuspid valves, and um, it had gone. I'd gone through five. It got me through, as I mentioned, all of my travails up, up to that point. But it was starting to fail, uh, as bicuspid valves do, because they have to work, you know, at least fifty percent harder than a tricuspid valve does. So um, we watched it. And uh, it was a close tug of war. Is it my asthma that's uh, not so good or is it my valve that's not so good? For people who don't have asthma, it's an easier check, an easier test. Um, so eventually he said, you have to go and see a cardiac surgeon. Uh, Aubrey Galloway was the one who, he, who we chose at, at NYU. <clears throat> a wonderful, um, a wonderful gentleman. Um, this was in um, December, I guess, uh, about uh, six years ago. And I said, well, you know, I'm planning to go over to Paris again in December. My, my son and my grandson are over there and um, we'll be over there about, you know, a month or so. Can we do the can we do the surgery? He, we had concluded I needed surgery uh, to replace the aortic valve. Can I do that when I'm back? He said, I wouldn't go to Paris. And I said, oh, dear. He said, no. He said, you do not want to go to Paris with the your aortic, valve, aortic valve in that condition. So we didn't. 
we put it, we put off the trip and we did not put off the surgery. And within um, a week or so after that uh, discussion, um, I went into surgery. And um, in fact, you can actually see the uh, entire surgery. We taped it for um, USA Today Online. And you can see the whole surgery. It's still up there on their website, uh, USA Today. Um, it was a remarkable operation. It went very well. And um, I have a new aortic valve, um, Edwards Life Sciences valve, that um, has kept me alive ever since. Since then, I learned that there are other people who weren't quite so vigilant. There were two head coaches of the National Football League. I'm going to tell you this story very quickly because within 24 hours of each other, first it was the Denver Broncos head coach, John Fox. This was eight years ago. Um, He um, felt lightheaded while he was playing golf. They took him to the hospital, um, did not suffer a heart attack, underwent a battery of tests, revealed a need for immediate surgery, and he went into surgery. A day later, the Houston's Texans head coach, Gary Kubiak, he was taken off the field after he collapsed on the field because of aortic stenosis. His aortic valve was failing, and they replaced it the next week. Both of them thought, oh, we can get through to the end of the season, and then we'll figure it out. Not so. You can die that way if you don't do it when your doctor tells you to, and especially if your doctor doesn't identify it. So that's the reason for paying very, very close attention to what's going on in your heart. Well, we're glad that you're you're doing well, and it's all good to hear with a bicuspid valve and uh, survivor. In fact, and if I don't uh, being even- I actually went, and um, Edwards flew me down to Singapore uh, to with the factory where they made my valve, and I actually met the team that manufactured, that sewed my valve and created it um, about six months after my surgery. It was quite mm-hmm. an emotional moment, I have to tell you. Well, there's actually a valve disease day, and uh, I read that about 60% of people have heard of this. I, I hadn't heard of this, really. I looked it up, but only 9% know anything at all about it. Maybe tell us a little bit about Valve Disease Day. I, I know you're an advocate and you, you talk a little bit about this, but maybe share with us some information about this. I am. I'm actually also on the board of um, Heart Valve Voices, which is a wonderful not-for-profit, which helps people understand uh, what's wrong with their heart and so on. Um, but uh, Heart Valve Disease Day, which is in February, that's heart, That's actually um, American Heart Month. <coughs> it's, um, it's designed to get out awareness of, of heart valve disease. And, and how important it is as a disease to recognize it and and um, and, and diagnose it and then take care of it. And, and it's it's not a it's, it's not a horrible thing that has happened to you. I mean, it's, it is entirely curable. Um, it is entirely, you know, if it's caught early enough. And as I say, there are people who still die of uh, aortic stenosis when they're not realized what, what's going on with them. And then all of a sudden, as was the case with those um, two head coaches of the NFL, just keel over. Um, but you don't have to. And so the idea is to have one day that's focused on what are the mistakes people make, what what are the what are the things that they need to look for, how do they look for it, and um, what should they do about it? And you know things like how much it will cost them, and and so on. And and most insurance covers virtually the entire surgery, and so on. Maybe share with a bit of advice that that our audience can kind of take away from from our conversation about heart disease. I know you you talk a little bit about these four steps and you talk about a heart health checklist. So tell us about that. Well, there there are checklists for a healthy heart in general, and that is quit smoking. Women smokers are more likely to suffer a heart attack than non-smokers. Lower your cholesterol, reduce your blood pressure, stay active. I I have to tell you today, I'm, I'm 76 years old. 
Uh, I rowed for a half an hour this morning. I have a, a row, I didn't do a rowing machine here. And I did a half hour on the uh, recumbent bike and then I did some weights. Uh, I do that virtually every day. Um, I, I stay active. You eat a healthy diet and you, above all, you talk to your doctor. And <clears throat> this is very important to, for people to understand. They need to talk to a doctor that they respect, that they understand, and who they really believe will identify problems. And if you ever think that your doctor is not necessarily listening carefully enough to your heart or whatever, find another doctor who will. Find a specialist. Go to a cardiologist and say, listen to my heart. Because listening to your heart is the most important thing you can do. When you, you, that's, that's when I say you listen to your heart. That is the step number one above all. And don't ignore any symptoms. We're with David Andelman of CNN. David Andelman is a heart valve disease survivor and advocate working closely with the Valve Disease Day and other organizations to make sure and keep us aware of maintaining a healthy heart. David Andelman, let me shift gears for just a second and talk to you a little bit about uh, the year that we've had. I suppose we're, we're about six months out from the January 6th insurrection. We're learning a lot. Uh, you know, in that in that time frame, maybe share with us a little bit about what we're learning about some of the personal accounts of some of the individuals, maybe some of the interesting testimony we've heard, the intel that been gathered, witnesses, you know, all of these things leading to this idea of really fomenting some some violence against uh, our elected leaders. Well, these are certainly dangerous times we're going through. And, and I've seen these kinds of times in other parts of the world where I've traveled there and reported on them. Um, I mean, I've reported on insurrections in, in Thailand, for instance, that were uh, really frightening and and, um, and, 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 and coups and, and so on in various parts of the world. We aren't at that point yet, obviously, but we're nearing that point. And my concern is that there is a red line. I talk a lot about red lines in my book, but there is a red line that we are approaching with in, in domestic terms um, of of. Um, that we can't that we cannot cross, and and I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that we don't adequately understand a lot of the forces that we need to understand that are attempting to, you know, take the wrong path for our country, if you will. You know, my next book, I'm I'm giving serious thought to doing a book dealing with autocracy versus democracy, and it's not an either or. Um, it's a really it's a it's a it's a spectrum, and it's a, a line along which or pendulum that the pendulum swings. And, and my concern is that we are swinging increasingly towards the, 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 the end of the, the spectrum that describes autocracy and, and further and further away from the spectrum that defines democracy. And um, that, that's my principal concern, because once you are headed in that direction, the momentum will take you so far, so much further than you really intended, very possibly, that um, the results can be pretty dire indeed. Um, I, I've watched what happened in um, in, in Eastern Europe, I, I spent um, three years for the New York Times as the bureau chief for Eastern Europe before the wall came down, when, under, when, when, when communism seemed like it was, you know, the thousand year Reich. It could never end. Communism is there forever. It wasn't, but it looked like it was. And, and understanding how the communists came to power in that part of the world, how dictatorships, those were dictatorships, very clearly, how they came. To, and, and we need to understand what the stakes are in all of this. And that's what I'm afraid we're not understanding, really. So the January 6th insurrection was, was horrible. And it was an insurrection, in my view. And I don't think there's any other way of describing it. I'm, I like to consider myself um, 
reasonably objective. I've never declared for a political party. I have, in fact, voted for president on both sides of political Republicans and Democrats in the course of my life. I vote for the best best person. And I think most journalists really believe, as I do, that it's imperative that we do keep an objective perspective, because otherwise no one is going to. And if we don't, then we're going to wind up with a press and a a government along the lines of what we've had, what the Russians have had, basically as far back as as the czars, as far back as the 12th century, or Ivan Ivan the Terrible. Because Putin is no more than, no more, no more, no less than a czar these days. And um, so that's what we have to worry about. And then the same was true with the, the Soviet communists. They were Brezhnev. You know, Andropov, um, Chernenko, Gorbachev, they were all mini czars. They had no competition. So um, we don't want to head in that direction. We don't want a government that is headed in that direction. And um, that's my concern for the future. Any interesting intel that you've gathered over the past few months that that, uh, you think's particularly um, pointed in in some of this regard with regard to the the insurrection? I, I deal mainly with international affairs, global affairs, and, and several things that, that concern me. Um, first of all, um, I'm very concerned right now about Afghanistan. I think we have made a, a colossal error in withdrawing so quickly and precipitously from Afghanistan. And I think that we have left the way open, A, for the Taliban to return. And I've been saying for some time, I think the Taliban, within six months to a year after we're gone, they're going to be back in charge for everything that that means. And at the same time, there are others going to be in charge as well. Others going to come in on their coattails, some of the terrorist groups, certainly. But the Chinese are very close to the Taliban through their friends in Pakistan. Pakistanis are very close to the Taliban. And, and we're making some mistakes in, in that part of the world, I think, that we will we'll learn, we'll live to regret at some point. I, I hate to be the, you know, the doomsayer, but um, my, my son, I, I write a weekly column now for CNN Opinion. And my, my son, uh, who is 44 years old, lives in Paris, a very smart young man. He's a filmmaker, filmmaker film director. He says, um, ah, another dreary, another dreary, grim uh, column from Andalman. And one time I wrote a, an upbeat column. He said, oh, my goodness, you've broken the mold. An upbeat column. That's so fabulous. But, but <laughs> I, I, try, I, I try to point out pitfalls of, and, and pitfalls that we can hopefully flag by looking at their historical antecedents very often. And I think uh, the best journalists are the ones that look at the world, um, the events of today through the prism of history and who understand history. So that's what I've always tried to do. And your son has a son, so you have a grandson. So all of this really is, this matters to well, us. Well, it does. And, and they live in, as I say, they, they live in, my son married a French lady. So I have a Franco-American grandson who's now eight years old. And um, they, they, they spend, um, you know, they spend the summer usually they have a little place up near Woodstock, so they spend the summers up there and, and occasionally during the year. Most of the time they're in France. And um, it's, yeah, I mean, the French are coming up on very important presidential elections next spring. I'm going to be following that when I go back in September this year. The campaign will be beginning. Um, and, and France has a, a, a right wing that is very potent, very dangerous in my view. I don't think they're going to win this time as they, they never have in the past. I don't think the French are prepared to turn their country over to, you know, sort of uh, French neo-Nazis. They, they've been through that. They went through that pretty badly during World War II. And, and many of them still remember that or their parents or their grandparents did. So um, 
But but these are all issues that I think are very important to understand, and and the American people need to understand it. It's interesting. A, a, a close friend of mine, Richard Haas, um, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, written a wonderful book on on the world, and he said, um, you know, we have to really we have to really understand the, what's going on overseas if we're going to understand what's happening in our country because. The world is just so closely interrelated these days that we can't ignore um, events beyond our shores. We can't we can't isolate ourselves as the last administration tried to do. We just we just can't do that very effectively anymore. The, the world won't allow it, and and we will be the victims if that happens. How do you think we're faring post COVID? We talked a little bit about the second wave. There are just heat waves in the Pacific Northwest. Putin and the Ukraine are, are on our minds. You've referred to them. How do you think the world is faring these days, especially for our for our grandchildren? Okay, well, let's start with heat waves. Um, one of the things that I covered a while back was COP twenty one, which was the, um, the, uh, the the global conference in um, in Paris on on on, on, on global warming, uh, and the environment. Uh, I think we have really dropped the ball on that. I think the world has dropped the ball on it, but particularly the United States. And I think we're beginning to pay the price for it. I think that is what we are seeing in terms of these enormous heat waves, and not only the heat waves, but you know other weather weather in other part, other times of the year that have just gotten gotten completely out of whack. We have a, we are in real danger, I think, in our planet that um, we will be reversing progress that we've made over hundreds of years um, in a matter of um, you know a few years if we don't really begin to take some some um, make some changes. I think that. This administration at least recognizes that there is a problem. I'm not sure that they have the, I'm not sure that they have the backing in Congress and and even in the United in the in the country uh, to correct that uh, anytime soon. I hope they do, and I hope they will begin at least begin that. So that's one of my concerns. Putin and Ukraine. You know, it's interesting. Um, Putin. Um, um, <laughs> Putin understands exactly how we how we work. He understands it better than we've ever understood Russia. And uh, I, I want to just read you what something that uh, Putin said uh, at his last State of the State of the Union message, if you to the um, Russian Duma, the Parliament. He said, "This is Putin talking, mind you. I hope that no one will think about crossing red lines with regard to Russia. We ourselves will determine in each specific case where they will be drawn." Now, for him to invoke that. That is throwing down the gauntlet. And we have to figure out if we're going to respect his red lines. And his red lines are far beyond what we would consider acceptable. He wants to take over much of eastern Ukraine, for instance, much as he's taken over Crimea. And as he tried to take over uh, the nation of Georgia in, 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 um, uh, in Europe. So um, we have to watch that very carefully because that, again, is creeping authoritarianism. And, and creeping autocracy. And if we don't watch out, we will find the bits and pieces around the fringes of our world beginning to be um, chipped away. And the red lines redrawn by people who should not be drawing them in the first place and allowing us to become victims of that. So we have to be very careful about all, about all of that, in my view. Well, you refer to the red lines. You're, you're the author, of course, of the book, A Red Line in the Sand, an excellent book. Tell us a little bit about your work on the Center for National Security, in particular the Red Lines Project. What is the Red Lines Project? Because you refer to Trump and Putin as being perhaps redrawing some of these lines. Trump affected probably the creation of some of the Red Lines. But tell us a little bit about the Red Lines Project. Well, it actually began several years ago, um, it, right after um, uh, 
President Obama drew this red line, he said, uh, over um, whether uh, the, the, the dictator in, in Syria, Bashar al-Assad, would use uh, chemical weapons against his own people. That was a red line, he said, that we will not tolerate. And then, of course, he did tolerate it. And, and I began to look at, I was going to work on a book and a project, a movie project and a book with um, a couple of French journalists because the French were particularly involved in that that whole uh, procedure. It really, um, the, the way the Americans treated their allies, the French, in, in that whole situation was, was really dastardly and really, really meant the end of the previous French presidency um, uh, under Francois Hollande. At any rate, we were going to do a book and a movie project on just on that particular red line. And I realized that there really was a much broader issue, and that is red lines writ large. So um, I started this project uh, that we began, and we began cataloging red lines all over the world. And what we discovered is there are more red lines in more different places in the world today than in any other single moment in history. And that's very scary. And it's not only red lines in Syria, it's red lines across the Middle East, certainly enveloping Iran and so on. There are the red lines in Eastern Europe of Russia and others have been involved in. Red lines in the South China Sea, the Chinese have established them around each one of these little islands that they, they've been fortifying militarily all across the South China Sea. And we can go on and on. There are red lines across Africa where some of the Middle Eastern terrorists who've been expelled from um, uh, the Middle East and, and found their way to Africa. They're starting them up there. Uh, all of these are really toxic and, and really potentially quite dangerous. So the goal of this book, and, and as I said, we have all the research backing that up, was to examine how these red lines happen. Some of them I traced back, the concept of red line in the sand traces back to the book of John in the, in the, in the New Testament, where Jesus drew a line in the sand and, and dared people to, who dared cross it and, and throw the first, cast the first stone. Um, so, um, you know, many of these red lines go back even before that into the prehistoric time. So, um, and there were more, much more modern red lines, of course, and much more dangerous red lines there in, in, in Korea, red lines over the, um, the first red line that was established in the, between the North and South Korea on the peninsula after World War II. And now, of course, um, the red lines regarding their, their nuclear capability. So um, all of these were, I think, worth looking at. And they, they helped to explain how the world is structured today and where we have opportunities for change, positive, constructive change, and where we need to just kind of dig in our heels and say, all right, this is as far as things go, no further. And that's, what's, that's, that's, what, that's where the concept of red lines is most important. And cybersecurity is when I, I heard um, Howard Letnick from Cantor Fitzgerald say that, that cybersecurity might be the biggest challenge to our economic future and, and one of the biggest issues that we will face in a red line that we – you know, will be challenged on. And Biden has said something similar to Putin. Oh, yes. There's no doubt about that. There are red lines involving cybersecurity. There are red lines in space. Mm-hmm. And most people don't recognize that. Space is going to be perhaps the next battleground. Um, already the Chinese are heading to the moon. Um, they've already landed on, 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 um, on, on the, uh, I'm sorry, they're heading to Mars. They've already landed on the moon, the Chinese. Um, the Russians are equally interested in space. We certainly are. There are hundreds, even there are thousands of satellites floating around up there. Some of them are dead. Some of them are still alive. Some of them are space junk. We have to worry about who is going to control space, who is going to control the other planets that we may be landing on. That's also something that we have to consider very carefully. It's not something that's in the now in the you know, distant future of um, the 
that the book called 1984 or whatever, which of course was published long before 1984. Um, uh, but we really have to look at and examine it at not only in cyberspace, but also in real space, where we're going and how this is going to be patrolled. Who is going to control, who's going to pull the strings as it were, um, and who's going to dominate those areas? We don't want others to dominate it. It is quite reasonable, I think, to assume that, that nobody should dominate it because the, the, spaces, the space around our planet, the space on other planets, it should be open to all. These are not something where we can plant a flag and say, this is ours. Um, it really, we really need to, um, to, to, to consider how we're going to deal with all of this in the future and deal with it on a global basis. Our guest has been veteran foreign correspondent, celebrated author, CNN commentator David Andelman. David Andelman, we're so grateful for your time and, uh, and all your hard work on some of these important issues. Please um, stay healthy and keep up the rowing and the biking and the weights and, uh, and the fishing out there at the, at the trout pond. <laughs> Uh, and and the writing and oh and by the way I, I do a podcast myself uh, it's called it's called a red line in the sand you can find it on evergreen so um, we'll put links to where you read the book the, the, the podcast is even much more manageable excellent so, thank you we'll find that put links to it but david andelman thanks for your time be well and uh i'd love to have you back and, and talk again sometime but what, a, what an honor it's been to talk to you oh it's been a pleasure and honor to be with you too thank you for having me paul i'm, I'm I'm yours whenever you want me. My thanks to CNN's David Edelman. Hopefully today's show will give you a sense of world events, national security, our place here, and what's going on. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful, not old, better show audience. Be safe. And remember, let's talk about better, the not old, better show. Until next time. Thanks, everybody.